1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, my name is Allison Renna, and Greg graciously invited me to step in for this episode as a guest host. I'm a doctoral student at Yale University, where I am studying the history and philosophy of religion and science. On this episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. John Modern, Professor of Religious Studies and Science and Technology Studies at Franklin and Marshall College, where I went to college a few years back and where John was my teacher. In this conversation, John and I discuss his new book, Neuromatic, or A Particular History of Religion and the Brain, which just came out from the University of Chicago Press. Neuromatic starts with an idea that so many of us have encountered moving through the world. That we can learn something about religion by understanding physical phenomena happening in the brain, usually through data given back to us through an MRI machine. In Neuromatic, John shows us the deep and powerful and complicated implications of that idea. So I wanted to speak with John about this book. John and I ended up having a conversation that begins with some of his earlier work on 19th century American evangelicals, touches on the relationship between philosophy and history, and sets us up for a really rich discussion of neuromatic. I want to note that because John and I are friends, we ended up having a very passionate conversation and during this discussion, a particular strong word beginning with the letter F is used a few times. If you don't want to hear strong language, we recommend that you skip this episode. So I want to take you with me to John's office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I met him on a warm afternoon a little while ago. When I walked in, John had some books laid out on the table where we had had so many conversations during my time as a student, and our conversation begins there.
1: Yeah, any so yeah, really, um, yeah. And stop me if I and just be like, this is good. But you can be like, give me a hand signal and be like, this is
0: too, too much, too <laughs> no, much.
1: And I also but, brought props, props, books from Neuromancer. Did yes, oh so my what is, what is here? Okay, we have a phrenology um, self-instructor. Okay, I'm not sure if you ever seen one of these. This is really yeah, it's a
0: this, tiny like. Beige book with gold writing and there's water stains. Water it.
1: stains. It is. Uh, let's so try, to the, try to get the try get the sounds. Signed by O. S. Fowler.
0: <gasps> no. Yes. Oh my. So our conversation begins with John showing me a 157 year old book by Orson Fowler, who was a central figure in John's earlier work on 19th century American evangelicalism. I hope you enjoy.
1: So wow. somebody went to the phrenological cabinet um, April 5th, 1864. Oh my gosh. Um, A.J. Budding um, had his or her head read by O.S. Fowler.
0: Uh, and, uh, who
1: is O.S. Who is Fowler? O.S. Fowler is um, um, one of the sort of leading uh, phrenologists, uh, American translators of uh, the kind of um, European tradition of phrenology, uh, the science of reading the shape and the contours of the head, um, in order, the surface of the head in order to discern sort of inner moral faculties. And um, famously, I write about this in my last book, he was the, he was the individual who literally discovered slash invented the faculty of spirituality in 1842 um, by amending the phrenological understanding of veneration and religion. Uh, before 1842, the religious faculty was basically reduced to one faculty of veneration, which was your capacity to submit or to defer to authority, whether that authority be a kind of transcendental or divine authority, or whether it be a kind of superior in this life. He's like, that's a little too cut and dry. It sounds a little not not Protestant enough, maybe you might say. And so he wanted a, another faculty of spirituality, which was your capacity to attend to invisible things, but not just tend to the invisible things, but to tend to um, the relationship between you and those invisible things. And so it had this kind of meta control thing where I make the argument that from that moment for O.S. Fowler, given his sort of investment in various forms of liberal Protestantism to Unitarianism and and, and kind of notions of true religion that are arising um, from more liberal circles in the Northeast, he he provides a, a kind of almost license to be like, I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? Mm. Uh, if, you, if you kind of go ahead 150, 200 years, you know, the person who can stand back and choose a little bit of a little bit of yoga, uh, um, a little bit of Ayurvedic medicine, a little a crystal here and there. But I also want to listen to um, Kanye. Put that all together into a coherent worldview. You are you are the engineer of self. You're on top of you and the inter- and so you're sort of anyway. That's who O. S. Fowler well, is.
0: <laughs> I don't, where where do you make that argument? If people want to read more about it,
1: well, I make that originally in my last book, Secularism and anti America, um, which actually is that I have a chapter on spirituality and liberal Protestants and phrenology and uh this other guy Andrew Jackson Davis. And a lot of those characters from that episode in that book appear in neuromatic yeah. in kind of different formations. And and um and so I kinda think I might mention in neuromatic the spirituality thing again, but I don't go into the, the sort of micro detailed depth of what Fowler is doing in terms of his discovery of spirituality. Mm. Um so
0: Had spirituality as like a key term carrying some of the same associations existed before Fowler or was he?
1: Yes. Yes. A little bit. Um, You know, obviously the word spiritual, if you kind of do a, you know, a word search, you'll find various, um, you know, mentions of the word spiritual or spirituality. Um, But it really, I, you know, this is my argument, I'm sticking with it. Uh, You really do see it begin in Unitarians in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, um, William Ellery Channing is one of the first people I've seen really use it in the way in which it's not just, um, it's not just uh, a kind of maybe synonym for religion or synonym for true religion or something like that. But it's something that both signals the, almost the essence of religion, but also Um, really tries to go out of its way to conjure your individuality your you know the kind of in the same way fowler did like to to move true religion away from any kind of um specter or or sort of um um intimation of of submission or unfreedom or that right religion should be all about maximizing who you are. And I think for Fowler, his invention of spirituality was to be like, yeah, that he's doing, he's codifying that understanding of religion, but you see it bubbling up among preachers and who are trying to really, you know, rally a, a population that is quickly becoming quite attuned to notions of a kind of consumer self, a certain kind of individualism, particularly white people in the Northeast who are experiencing a kind of, you know, change and in, 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 in the marketplace, a certain kind of change in the way in which they sort of understand their private public, you know, selves, and, you know, millions of people talk about this, um, but you can see how spirituality is very much part of that larger story. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, so we have, so this is the O.S. Fowler's book, go back to this one, but then you see what's great about this, you can see this individualism, this strange individualism of happening uh, here where the person, obviously, he went down every, Every single um, faculty from conjugality to parental love to destructiveness to acquisitiveness, etc um, and 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 you have one to seven, seven being very large to very small, and he marks it marks it in there like oh you have know, kind of average, and you kind mm-hmm. of want kind of middle range you don't want too high or too low, and better yet on each one of these is a page number, so okay on digestive power. Um, which is yeah. There you go, Ali. There you go. So digestive. <laughs> a, know,
0: my, my, I've been thinking a lot about um, the spirit and the human intestines.
1: Yes, and so yeah. yes, and so that's the next podcast when I interview okay. you about that book. Um, so digestive power. So if you have a four average digestive power, you go to page twenty-seven, and you mm-hmm. can read about. Um, well, what does that even mean to have a faculty of digestive power? But then you go four, oh, Oh, have only fair digestive vigor, too little to be abused and need to promote it. But if you had high, like stomach, can you have a high digestive power, can eat anything with impunity and digest it perfectly, can live on little or eat much and need not be very particular as to diet. You know, just kinda, you know it just kind of just tells you who you are, you mm-hmm. know, in a way it also gives you instructions about perhaps things you might want to work on. So you kind of get this. Also very famously, this plastic brain, this plasticity, the malleability of self, the, you know, really, I mean, the whole metaphysics of phrenology is based upon the fact that you can change,
0: mm.
1: right? There's why are we measuring your head otherwise, right? You know, we're not just telling you who you are, we're telling you who you can become. Mm. And I, obviously, in the kind of Foucaultian biopolitical register is a, a big point for, I think, from from. My understanding of the 19th century, where he's like, "Oh, wow, that's happening. It's happening everywhere, in all these different registers." Uh,
0: who is Foucault? What are biopolitics, and why does that teach you the 19th century? <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, who is Michel Foucault? Michel Foucault, French philosopher, um, who has, um, you know, has he never studied American religion? <laughs> I mean, he he has some things to say about. Um, things I think that could be easily included, including prisons and things like that. But I think um, Michel Foucault is a a philosopher who I I think was um, really an historian as well, who for me, the payoff is his kind of rethinking of what it means to be a subject in this world and how our notions of what it means to be a subject have been at least before, or until he really came out and really is pushing on this. We're so indebted to these, you know, understandings of like, okay, you're you're either free or you're not, right? You're 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 f- doing free things or you're being op- oppressed or or, or 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 put down or something like that, and how power in general either liberates you or frees you right there's kind of this either or thing that i think he sort of looked at in the western sort of political philosophical tradition and was like that doesn't seem right seems like you can be both free and not free at the same time it seems like you know uh every every moment of liberation is also shadowed by moments of discipline Right. You, you know, who gave you the language and which to articulate your original poem, etc. It's just it's a complicated story. And so that's an easy insight. But then he takes it and he just begins to write these like books that are um, basically demand that we rethink, um, for example, our understandings of the relationship between reason and madness, mm-hmm. you know. what what constitutes the difference between you know the normal and the abnormal in terms of psychological makeup or madness or reason or or freedom and discipline and these kind of classic binaries that are sort of all revolving around certain understandings of what a human subject is i think he just sort of almost systematically dismantles them and so his last um, series of books famously where he kind of really gets into this notion of biopolitics um, where he wants and he's talking about the concept um, of sexuality and his, you know, his major insight is that, you know, sexuality, uh, you know, let's 2020 or let's say 1975 when he's thinking this sexuality is a it's a mark of you that's the most intimate thing you have that's your freedom and that's where you are the most free it's also where you're the most vulnerable it's the it is the hinge of who you are as self and, and and Foucault's like you know wow like it might be those things but you know what it also is it's also just an incredible hinge of how power circulates through you and so your freedom as a sexual being is bound up in the discipline of Of your sexual being um you know and so the 19th century for foucault he calls it like in a sense the birth of biopolitics where you have different kinds of regimes and systems and modes of 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 governance and certain kinds of ideologies and certain kinds of kind of corporate ethical sort of directions that that um offer you your freedom or incentivize your freedom um, and, and, and in a sense to, to sort of they give you the terms by which you will become you. And that is a great irony and a great sort of um, problem, um, I think, in terms of thinking through what's happening um, in, in notions of, you know, and when sexuality becomes a kind of clearing call for revolution, liberation.
0: We're going to use Foucault to think about Fowler. Is does that same that same structure hold up in what the kind of human being that Fowler is creating?
1: I think so. I found. I mean, I've you know, I think I'm going back to my last book, mm-hmm. but uh, uh yeah. I, I mean, I found much um, insight and vision from Foucault when I was reading mm-hmm. the 19th century archive. It felt like it was coming alive in in different ways for me. And what I tried to capture on that page was almost like a Foucauldian. If Foucault would have taken a taken a moment to think about the nineteenth century American religious scene for a moment, what might he have seen? Um, and so I found it. I, I, I and I stand by. I like. I think there's something. I you know, in a lot of ways, its argument secularism is not. I mean, whatever. It's it's novel in relationship to all manner of historiography in American religion, but in terms of just its general understanding of human beings, I mean, it's a Foucauldian text in so many ways, and it's this kind of asking the question, what if human beings are like this, or what if, you know, historians who study human beings are like this, what then does that material look like? And I go into the 19th century, and I find that I wrote a book that's very different from some of the major works in American religious historiography if it, you know evangelicals like Mark Knoll are writing their big books on American religion or liberals like Lee Schmidt are writing their book, book books on liberals. And these are all good and they're fine but I I wrote a different book with many different assumptions that I learned outside of class in the American religion class I learned over here in the theory class and I kind of brought them in and so you know going back to Fowler I think it does it, I mean I think Fowler I don't I don't I don't know I mean, I would never feign to understand where Fowler's coming from at the like when he goes to bed at night when he wakes up. But I mean, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. And he and he's committed to this. I mean, this is he's an incredible practitioner. He's a he's a a mechanic of biopolitics. Like and he is really sets up an incredible, not just a machine, but like a, a corporation, like a, a multi-pronged corporation that has all these different kinds of outlets and. And media things, and um, yeah, I mean, I would say then your question, I heard difference, like I think of people i mean all my students think they're i've had I had a student this year claim that they were how how their generation was so much more rebellious than previous generations because of the internet.
0: How did this make you feel? How did you feel? <laughs> I was like, I hope I didn't react too strongly. But I was just like,
1: I was like, I don't know what that means, first of all, right? And I would say I think it might be better, at least at the beginning, to sort of think comparatively about whatever we're talking about and what that means. And, you know, but there's this... You know, I, I, and I think, I I mean, this is going to go along. I think I'll put it this way. I do think the sort of biopolitical frame, and I know there's a lot of people going, well, it's about necropolitics or it's about um, different kinds of mutations in the biopolitical. And that's, I, I'm not against any of that. But for my work as an historian who um, just likes to read old shit and, and think about how, why that, why it's interesting, what's relevant about it. and and actually why i'm interested in this stuff in the first place it's it still works for me it still works for me as a kind of general frame of thinking about um you know i think the the is it irony or tragedy um something about human being that i'm attracted to and its limits and i think i got that from my uh, mentor Catherine albanese who was a uh I'm not sure if it's ever been publicized, but a deep Foucauldian herself. Mm. And I'm not sure she's ever mentioned Foucault in her public writing. Um, but I, I can attest to you that she was a deep, deep and close reader, marginalia everywhere of, of her Foucault when it was first published in the 70s in English and translated. As And she was a young professor and she was reading all that stuff. And everybody asked, like, how did she do what she, how did she single-handedly kind of just break off from that classic church history tradition that was just the, wasn't even the dominant paradigm. It was so dominant people didn't even recognize it as the dominant. It was just what religious history was. And Kathy comes along and, you know, student of Martin Marty just turns the whole thing on its head. And I want to think that she was able to do that in part because she was such an incredibly close reader of Foucault.
0: (laughs) How did, how did Kathy Albanese change the field of American race history? What did she
1: do? I think she decentered it in a kind of classical way where, you know, a couple things. So it's not just that we're going to be looking at stuff that we didn't look at before, you know, so it's not simply Methodist and Baptist and Catholics plus New Agers and, you know, Uh, sort of water therapeutics and you know those in phrenology or spirituals it's not just the addition Um, the way in which i see kathy's work particularly nature religion and then her final stuff on um more later works on metaphysical religions and republic of mind and spirit so it's not just add-on but it's like we are going to sort of shift the sort of just the the narrative arc away from white protestants um, and we're also going to shift the analy- analytic criteria by which we are defining what religion is. And I think that's when I went to study with Kathy um, in graduate school. I remember just trying to decide where I wanted to go to graduate school and probably the advice I was giving you, like just read the people who are you going to be working with potentially mm-hmm. and who do you really, who really comes off the page at you want to work with. And I remember i have not been that familiar with her work as an undergrad um and i remember picking it up and it's just like and and in a lot of ways she was you know she was offering these kind of alternatives to what i imagined myself to i always felt like i wanted i thought religion like this is so cool i can study elvis presley or i can say these weird things and i can all i need to do is talk about like I don't know, Contra or Axis Mundis, and I, you know, I can get away with it, right? There was this license to interpret that I I felt in the literature, but it wasn't, I think, until I discovered Kathy's work that it was like, oh my gosh, here's somebody who's actually moving on that in a way, right? Um, and, and so um, I took a lot from her, who then later on, I learned, gets a lot of that, not just from Foucault, but somebody like Charles Long, hmm. right? At the University of Chicago, where one of her teachers and one of her mentors um, who is reading like Derrida in the French in 1967 or 1968, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And thinking like, oh, what does is, what is Derrida and the notions of difference have to do with rethinking African-American religious history and its role, the way it gets narrativized, the, the uses and abuses of the story for various kinds of purposes. And, um, you know, I think I'm just kind of going off on a nostalgic peak here, but you just think about all these really – fascinating this 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 mini leverage of, or mini lineage of just chuck and kathy and you're just like oh my god there's like a lot of things happened before 1975 that we're still sort of working ourselves through in 2020 right mm-hmm. you know so um i think that's a bias of me as an historian how things slowly things change you know but um yeah Sorry about that. I kind no, of it's off. so good. I yeah. have one more question for you. But yeah. just,
0: um, I think you alluded before um, about how your books that you have written before, particularly secularism, um, in Etabellum America were breakages from the typical way of writing history in American religious history. And one of the um, responses that people had to reading particularly secularism was um, either delight in or frustration with the way you were thinking with theorists and so i want to ask or at least one of the ways they, re- they reacted um i want to ask what do you think thinking with theory helps us do in looking to history
1: oh this makes us smarter right yeah. um, you know, no i mean i imagine you know when i think of theory it's like always kind of like what if it's always a subjective kind of thing what if what if biopolitics is has what if that's what if that's going on <laughs> <You> know <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you know or what if you know you read Clifford Geertz or Mary douglas or um Judith Butler and you're like what you' like oh shit right you you get these revelations like you put on these glasses and it's you know you see the world differently um and as an historian like i i mean I really it's a pet peeve of mine and some people do this to me like they'll identify me as a theorist of religion hmm. and i'm like fuck no i'm not a theorist of religion i'm an historian and i'm proud of that i'm not just a Foucauldian, and the historians don't want you know the real historians and i i'm putting my i'm putting my fingers up in fake nixon quotation marks the <laughs> the real historians um don't want to recognize me because i read too much theory right i read somebody like mary douglas right i was told explicitly by mark noel in a public setting that he does not recognize the people that I'm talking about, i.e. 19th century evangelicals, right? Um, He does not recognize them. And And besides, John isn't even really citing the same people. You know, he, like, cites Emile Durkheim and Mary Douglas. And what does that have to do with 19th century evangelicals? I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I got into this business to think, you know, and to think expansively and be like, well, what do they have to do with one another? Which gets back to your question. They have they have a, a vision of the, how the world might work. They have a vision of perhaps the mechanics and perhaps even the metaphysics of how this world might work. And, um, and I think it's valuable to be able to read them, entertain them, I mean, to adopt them. You can disagree with them, but to be able to be a kind of, um, I don't know, somebody who is writing academic books and to claim as a matter of professional obligation that you're not obligated to read that stuff because it's outside your field to me is, 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 is hard because it's not like you're not reading. I mean, it's just like, here's, here's books that provide different ways in which the world works.
0: Sounds like when that person was criticizing you by saying, I don't recognize the people in your book. He was, at least in the statement of recognition or not recognition, seeming to say there is something that these people are that I don't see here. Would you agree that that's how one's subjects work when you're writing history? Is there a truth that you're looking for when you look to history? Or does theory help you process those objects differently?
1: So, I mean... I think that might be you kind of putting your finger on perhaps the difference, you know, ways in which this other person and I are sort of thinking about the past and what we're doing. You know, I don't want to describe this like, you know, like he's like telling us what exactly happened. I don't know. I don't think it's so naive to be like he's not like this is the one way and this is there's no other way to do this. Mm-hmm. There's no other vision of this. It's not that it's, it, it's more of. It's more of, I think, a, com- a capacity to compartmentalize. I mean, let's just be honest. My whole, like, the first chapter in Secularism Antibullo America is a, a, a critique of Mark Knoll. And the critique goes like this. Oh, my God. Mark Knoll is right. What an amazing fucking historian he is. Look at this amazing archive that he has put together and the ar- argument that he is crafting out of these materials. It's so convincing. It's so thorough. And what that means is this. And my argument then is like what this shows to us is the incredible discursive Foucault, you know, Foucault taught me to recognize, oh, my God, there is an incredible biopolitical discourse that is going on here that is circulating through evangelicalism in the 19th century, circulating through evangelicalism and historians of evangelicalism and the storytellers about evangelicalism in the 20th century. And so. And, and and so I, too, am part of this thing, right? And I wrote an essay right after that book called My Evangelical Conviction, where I talk about my own sort of movements within and across evangelical things. And and, and so the point is, like, my, my, I have no problem with Mark Knoll. He's an amazing historian, right? I mean, I have, I'm glad I have my library here. Here's my, here's my Mark Knoll with all the tape flags. And best yet... Inscribe, he inscribed it to John. I can't even write what he said. <laughs> I can't even read what he said either. <laughs> but, you know, I read the shit out of his book, right? And I take it very seriously. And I think perhaps my gripe is like, it's very, it's hard. I mean, I guess, I guess somebody could say, I, I can't. mean, this is a book of just incredible learned erudition, you know, footnotes. Uh, it's just, you know, what? Wow. You know, I think... uh I, I think it's much easier to be like, well, you know, I don't understand what's going on. I, uh, biopolitics, what is that, French? You know, I don't well, know.
0: Why, Why? what do you think is the reason that someone like Mark Knoll would say he couldn't understand what you had done with that archive?
1: Because I, I think maybe he, he hasn't done the work of reading Foucault for 20 years. And guess what? I've read a lot of events. Like, look up, I have shelves of evangelical tracts and literature, right? I, you am do doing, I am doing
0: confirmed. There's <laughs> very old books and many of them in this
1: room. <laughs> you know that's why I don't yeah. give up that kind of claim. Like I am an historian. Perhaps I'm just doing you know more work than other historians who want to claim that I'm not doing that work. Just because I read theory and the archive together. And um, how could you not? I guess is my question, right? How could you not be interested in an interesting person writing? A, I mean how could you not have an opinion about Foucault as a 21st century intellectual, a, a learned opinion? You might not like the person, you might think they're wrong, awesome, but wh- how do you get away with not?
0: I'm sorry to keep raising this puppet of Merkel, you've asked was like, isn't his rejection of the application of Foucault, or that maybe that's, the, that's a really bad verb, the application, but thinking with Foucault in the 19th century archive, different from saying that he doesn't have a thorough reading of them.
1: Well, he hasn't given me a thorough reading and didn't give me a thorough reading on the spot and I've yet to hear a thorough reading of people who sort of share like, you know, that kind of I know my field and I know the Foucaultians. I I can count them on a few hands, you know?
0: (laughs) Does thinking with power like, like if we have Foucault's power, but with really any theory across time betray any commitments to some kind of thing about humans and their societies that just keeps popping up.
1: So are you kind of getting at there perhaps are different metaphysical commitments or theological commitments that we're making?
0: I, that's one way to phrase it. Yeah. I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that's fine. Right. And, and so, you know, and that's totally fine. And I got was asked one time and I think about this question a lot. i remember not really understanding where the question was coming from I think a, a person who was listening to me and was becoming skeptical of my Foucaultian, whatever, asked me something to the effect of like, well, is genealogy the kind of method that Foucault, you know, sort of indebted to Nietzsche, but this kind of, you know, a sort of history of the present notion where you're thinking about how did you come to be, how did the questions that you were formulating and asking come to be articulated in this particular moment in time? And that is sort of the beginning of your history. Um, he asked me, is like is genealogy my spirituality? And I think about that question, of, oh, that's a sick burn. And I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite get it at the time. <laughs> but you really
0: internalized that sick burn for neurotic.
1: Yes, I have. I think I have. <laughs> yes, I have. I think. And that's what – this book, I think, is going to be on one level more readable than secularism. I think just in line to line, it's an easier book in a sense. It doesn't quite – it's not quite as inside baseball as secularism Um, and so that's good. Um, But it's also like ah, a more – I feel more liberated, right? I was like – I was not tenured yet and – I still had concerns about what people thought of me and things like that. And now I care less. That's <laughs> no, not true, but you know what I'm saying?
0: Like, I want to ask you a few questions about really like science and religion and stuff. So I think mm-hmm. how we're we using those words, because I don't think that you can understand any of our conversation without maybe a first move that you and I, you helped teach me to make um, as an undergrad, which is like, shaking up those categories. And you do that work in the book. So, um, Maybe I, my first question for you to get us towards there is really like, why, John Modern, are you as a scholar of religion studying the brain? How did you get towards the neuromatic?
1: How it started? Yeah. Well, it's, I think, um, it's uh, probably two things. It started a little bit with the previous work I've done on phrenology, um, you know, just sort of becoming interested in this so-called proto-scientific, proto-psychological, um, uh, discipline that arose in early the mid 19th century that understood the brain as a religious object and so i was like oh, i did some work on that you know hmm, who else was doing that now and then that kind of was part of it but it was also uh, you know I, I think motivated in the you know and in, in, in around 2010 or 11 i think i was going to the american academy of religion which is the Huge conference for the study of religion, which is a, one of the largest academic conferences in the country, it has like eight to ten thousand people with their name tags, you know, <laughs> walking around the conference center in San Diego or San Antonio or Boston or wherever it might be, and everybody there studies religion, right, on some level. But that what that means is just this incredible variety and diversity of what that you have you have you know tibetan monks walking around with like smu baptist you know theologians with like hipster kids who are reading their foucault and you have everything in between right um but and i i've always liked that conference a lot just for um you know just seeing all my friends basically (laughs) um from graduate school and 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 beyond uh but i just started noticing you know like there were this new tribe of Two tribe I had not recognized or not really sort of taken into account these this new tribe of cognitive scientists. They were kind of all vaguely anthropological, and they had enough, they were talking about you know, like different parts of the brain and sort of doing the science thing. And they would not only come into panels that I often thought were zones like history or textual analysis or whatever it might be, and they would they would speak very authoritatively about what they imagined we were studying and they would always do it from this kind of almost like i get it it had a, a certain kind of punk aggression to it which is cool um fine with punk aggression and i i appreciate it on some level and then i started going to their shows i started going to their sessions in the following years 2012 2000 2014 and i was just i felt I I felt like, oh, my God, I, I should have been an anthropologist of religion. This is this is amazing. Right. And and so I think that first moment was born out of a sense of defensiveness of like, who are these new people saying such, you know, what I didn't think were very convincing claims with incredible amounts of not just charismatic authority in the room, but with this kind of deference to the scientific method and numbers and charts and pictures of brain to, and, and statistical things it proved to me that whatever my ideas about Durkheim's understanding of the sacred profane difference was really, you know, pales in comparison with the fucking fact that when we said this to this person, this happened, look at the picture, it's blue. And you're like, okay. And so I think in that moment in that moment, I I was struck with I think i wouldn't I wouldn't argue this, but I was like, this smells a lot like a religion, or it smells it smells like that's what that's what insular groups do that have their own metaphysics that that are practicing, and I was like,
0: huh so when you say, yeah. Oh my gosh, I should have been an anthropologist, you're saying this room full of cognitive scientists." should have been my field site. I should have been here observing what's yes. happening in this room. Okay.
1: I had that insight, I think, early. as just like a, you know, I may have tweeted something out or whatever <laughs> I did in 2011, something, you know, kind of cutting and witty and dry and sort of esoteric or something like that. And I think after that, I started push. I, I got involved in a science, like a project that was studying prayer with a lot of different kinds of people, and I, I proposed to study. And that was the first moment. like, I want to go. And, and hang out with actual cognitive and neuroscientists while they study religion. I think that would be really interesting. And that's probably 2013, 2014, I started thinking that. And that's when I personally got way into all the science study stuff. That's like mm-hmm. when I first really read Lutour. That's when I first started sort of seeing this entire field that I had not really been that aware of. And for me, like, oh, my God, this is amazing. They are they are studying science and and science almost as like, well, here's here's a theological tradition and we're going to not study it in order to affirm it or to say it's not true. But we're going to treat it in the way that is very familiar to me as a scholar of religion. Like I don't I don't put different things in front of my students to debunk them. Nor to say that they're really true. We 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 think about them historically and what's going on them with them in a literary or textual way or something like that, or, or the context in which they take effect, et cetera. And I found almost this like, oh my gosh, like you guys are like, you know, you know, you know, sort of a, a cousin. Like we have we have a related sort of take. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's how it began, and where I I I began to that initial insight as a scholar religion where I'm like, huh this smells religiously, you know, on some level. Or when I first read some of the cybernetic archive around the same time, like this totally smells like theology. Like it is smell. I don't, I don't know what, like what, like what kinds of like the writing, the genre, the sensibility. And I think I started there and, um, and that was, I think the beginning. And I, and one of the things that I learned throughout, like I'm not the first person with this insight, right? Many scholars of the cybernetic who are like, huh, some weird shit going on here right and 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 i always like and and so i'm not the first person to notice that but i think i was my one little claim to fame is i think i'm the first historian of religion to sort of weigh in on what perhaps is going on religiously here so i just have a kind of professional background where i can do some comparative work that i think other people aren't quite ready or trained to do Mm. and that is also to speak of people have different expertises. Like I, you know, some people are like PhDs in physics and things like that. I'm like, I don't, I don't have that, right? Mm. And so my, my take on the brain here, you know, um, is very much, uh, very much respectful of the kind of scientific claims that they're making. I'm not trying to say, no, that doesn't add up to 2.4. I'm like, no, like not questioning the machines are not working right. Or, uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of step back and just like, deeply and densely historicize them to the point where they they and other people can begin to see, um, you know, different kinds of well, neuro and cognitive scientific perspectives as products of history um, and not necessarily just simply embedded into the sort of fabric of our reality.
0: So. I think moving through the world, uh, it's easy to imbibe um, something that we might call a science and religion divide. These two things that are separate from one another, maybe they're in conflict, maybe they complement one another, but nonetheless, they name something um, that is characterized by their Difference You have maybe science, which is a um, mode of inquiry for gaining objective knowledge about the world. And you might have religion, which is maybe an institutionally based um, community structure organized around a set of beliefs. These are the ideas that might be easy mm-hmm. to move through the world and absorb. How did your entry into that cybernetic archive or those uh, lecture halls on the cognitive science of religion show you something different was happening with those categories? And what was happening? Why did things start to cross over and smell differently than maybe they themselves would have thought they smelled?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's just dwelling within that archive. And when I say the cybernetic archive, I'm talking about like the the Claude Shannons and the Mathematical Theory of Communication and Warren McCulloch and Walter Pitts' Understanding of Neural Networks with a series of articles in the 1940s. I'm talking about like Norbert Wiener's more like trade paperback pop science books on cybernetics and John von Neumann's stuff on um, computer, even Alan Turing's stuff a little bit. I don't talk too much about Turing. I think... The thing for me was to—I think it was—it was in relationship to the cognitive and neuroscientists because I was reading what they were reading. I was trying to, you know, as an historian, I'm like, okay, here's some people I'm interested in. Who are they reading? How are they reading that? Right. And so my first instinct as an historian was to go back and to sort of try to survey what they were reading and how they were coming up with their ideas about religion. And so the first move was like, wow, like this is like, you know, the the affect of the contemporary cognitive scientist, right? And it was the affect in the room, the seminar room or the conference room at a conference or perhaps, you know, it's a really kind of just super like objective, confident, almost like, you know, we, you know, we're not assholes. We don't know the truth, but we are stating what we think is true. We're doing it strongly because this is how intellectual work is done, right? Own up to your ideas. Don't just point out flaws and deconstruct things and do that thing, right? Don't just be a critic on the sideline where you never stand for anything. You've got to stand up for what you believe in. I was like, ha, huh, where's my Martin Luther? Oh, my Martin Luther's up there. But, um, um, you know, so I think it was like that. John, what do you mean by that? What do you
0: mean by that?
1: Well, you know, it was that, again this This is getting way too like psychological, but like I, you know I think um there's some part of me deep inside of me that um I recognize a kind of alpha male right, you know, and I recognize it, and I don't like it about myself and I try to manage it, and I try to like do things and, but I see it in the world on un- I want to be like that I just want to whack them all down, right I just like, uh-uh, and so I noticed a incredible masculine confident, cocky, sort of. And what I think, and I still think, just – I don't want to say shallow, but this doesn't add up. The affect is so much stronger than what is actually being said. And I was like, that's really interesting. Because you go back to the Cybernetic Archive, what they're reading, um, it's a lot weirder, right? I mean, um, it's a lot weirder where you begin to have people talk about – um. You know, like Wiener talks about this, the idea of basically reducing a human being into information in order to transfer them from one place to the other.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean... I'm not here to tell anybody what religion is or what religion's not, but I'm like, wow, that's fucked. That's crazy. that's awesome. Like, now I want whatever I'm doing as a scholar of religion, I would hope that I can say that, that's the kind of thing I would like to study, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I and I am and like, well, some other people have some ideas about what happens, and you know, we, we think of these things, and so I was encountering ideas that I'm just like, wow, that that is just that the, it is it's so imaginative and so just wonderfully bizarre. I want to celebrate it. And, and then it was that bizarre edge that I did not see kind of it, it sort of had gotten contained or domesticated on the way to the cognitive and neuroscientist. And so in a lot of ways, I think, and I'm just saying this out loud, I'm not sure if I buy into this, but you think about the kind of quirky sort of nature of those early cyberneticians and the fact that they were kind of all over the place and the almost orthodox kind of, you know, sort of, Ritualistic sort of kind of repetitions of ideas among cognitive neuroscientists. If you're thinking about the religious factors and how they differ, Um, but yeah, uh, I think it was that moment where I I began to think not just as a cybernetic archive or the cognitive scientist. I don't. I mean, I didn't want to be like, well, they're really religious and we didn't know it, right? And I didn't want to. I'm not interested in that move as a general kind of thing. I'm much more interested in sort of stepping back. And thinking about, as you kind of frame this entire question, that we live in a world right now, which for, you know, it is, it is absolutely um, the, the, the idea that, we, you know, there, there's something uh, religious and there's something scientific. And they, again, they can be compatible and they can be in conflict or whatever that is. Those, that categorical difference is everywhere. And as and, um, and a historian, again, and this goes back to like whatever the Foucaultian proclivities I have. You know, I'm not so much interested in getting in there like, no, you've got it wrong. The actual real relationship between religion and science is this. And here's how it really works, as opposed to all these other people who've gotten it wrong. You know, my hopefully contribution to this is to sort of allow people to stand back for a little minute, a a bit, for a minute or two, and to appreciate um, the the sort of mutual sort of generative um, relationship that these categories have, right, in our contemporary moment, and to try to un- peel back that onion a little bit to begin to see, like, where are these moments where you begin to see this division, this difference really manifesting itself. Um, and so I think my take is, you know, um, on the particular history of religion in the brain, um, it, you know, it could almost be subheader, you know, particular history of religious difference in the brain, you know, uh, the, the difference. That is the secular, right? You know, and I think we've arrived at a space where I'm coy in the book, and sometimes I hint and I use language to suggest that um, there is something going on right now with this kind of encompassing attention and the intensity of our in- attention to the brain that, you know, sounds and smells and tastes like religion as defined by cognitive and neuroscientists, right? to use their definitions of what the religious is. And, mm. and, and, you know, and so sometimes I feel comfortable being like, well, according to their definition, what do these guys look like? Right. Um, but as a scholar, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I refuse to, to come down on like well, what that is because it's that openness and it's that sort of um, open tension that I think allows me as the historian to do the work that I do and tell the stories that I tell that, Aren't bent on closing that difference down, but is simply to sort of perhaps surf and float, and to be able to see how these how that difference is conjured almost at every moment, and how it plays out in different ways and circuitous ways across different terrains and time spaces and whatnot. So, yeah.
0: Um, in the book, you I think do. A- beautiful discussion of holding category these cognitive scientists' categories against their work um in your discussion of uh interpretation through the mri and prayer can you recount some of that uh work that you did and how you hold those categories against each other yeah uh,
1: so yeah no um so the book begins with me and the mri i am uh i am uh i am partaking in a um a study uh, where they're looking, basically looking um, to find some neural correlates of uh, of religion. It's more specific than that, but yeah, I, I'm taking place. And so I go into the MRI, and I had this experience in the MRI that was, you know, kind of overwhelming. I felt, I felt, you know, it was it, it was a physical, visceral experience, but it was also an intellectual experience, and it was an experience that, you know, I kind of pitch it and frame it as a kind of classic sort of you know kind of mystical encounter with power or something like that but it's always done a little bit with a kind of raw sort of tone you know and then i and then also in the book it kind of is also bookended by my time at the university of Aarhus with cognitive scientists who are studying prayer and mysticism and um and so at all times i'm really trying to keep the reader informed that this book that they're reading is so much about the past is so grounded right now. Like I am, I am the writer right in front of you. Am, I'm writing, you know, with my own limited understanding of the present and trying to tell a story about the past. And so what I think I, I learned from sort of hanging out with the scientists and, and trying to get my head around their categories um, of, of religion and the secular and the brain was that. Gosh, I mean, how is it? I mean, I think it it comes back to this. There is something you have, you and our audience perhaps has read some Charles Taylor on the secular age, the big book on the secular age. It's a fine book done by a philosopher um, who sort of tries to tell the big story about how we got here. And helpfully, he defines the secular age as not the retreat or the decline of religion that 's not the point that 's not that 's not what has happened to modernity um, and what Charles Taylor says is that but somehow um, we as as secular moderns um, what distinguishes us from previous people who weren 't not secular moderns is the fact that we are forced to encounter religion as a choice as something we can feel like it's we're born into, or we can feel like we can reject, or we can embrace, or we can change, or we can sculpt. It's that sort of uh, kind of almost call that, that I think um, Taylor points to as a distinction that says this is what we do as secular moderns. And I, I, I agree. I think that's a decent, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but what's interesting about that is so often um, that kind of r- affirmation of a secular subject as at the end of the day, inherently free to choose, inherently free to reject. And I think accompanied by that is a, a lack of attention uh, to the fact that, you know, the world makes its way in whether you want it to or not, right? Um, you know, ideas and, and powers and forces, they, they, they make their way, you know, under the skin or however you want to put it. And, and, and I just, I find it very interesting how individuals sort of live their life uh, thinking that somehow they're immune to the culture that contains them. And I, I kind of go after historians um, who sort of have that position, and I kind of go after these cognitive neuroscientists who imagine themselves to be immune from history and culture. Um, that somehow that doesn't affect them, that they are almost like a laboratory unto themselves, that they have controlled for every ecological confound that can make their way in. Where not only they do they not ask these questions that I would like them to ask, like, why are you asking about the brain? Why are you asking this particular question about spirit? Why are you defining religion that way and not this way, right? Again, not because I have the right answer of, like, how you should define religion, but I think it would be worth their while um, to reflect a little bit upon these questions. But I think, in, you know, so not only did I not find scientists, cognitive neuroscientists doing that kind of work, because as I said, like, that doesn't... You're never going to be able to say anything, John, if you do that. You're going to be lost in little circles of thought your whole life. You're never going to be able to come down and say, this is where the categorical difference is. This is, this is. And I get that if you're a doctor or a medical doctor trying to treat somebody for a disease. You know, you don't want a kind of Foucaultian doctor or a Deridian doctor. I get that. You want somebody who is, you know, an analytical philosopher, you know, this is it. Here's the pill. Here's the thing we're going to do with that. Part of your brain. We're gonna do that, and that thing that you don't like happening is gonna not happen anymore. Praise God! Awesome, right? But I can't handle is like, you know, the the, the, this goes back to like why this book was written. People making strong claims about religion or hope or life or morality or these things that are not nothing to do with like empirical medical things, right? They're they're making humanistic arguments through um, a kind of apparatus of science, and they're doing it in such a way as that they've already cut off any possibility that it might be worthwhile to engage in what those questions that we often associate with humanistic or historical questions, like why would you, why do this, why why think about this moment now, what's happening, what ecological confounds have made their way in, why are you defining religion this way and not that way, right? Um, Yeah. And I'm just, I I think for me that itself is a kind of way of being in the world that, um, yeah, I just, I think I, I think at the end of the day, I I just don't feel that's how I inhabit the world. And I look at my friends and family and other people. I don't think that's how the world works.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, I just don't think we're capable of immunizing ourselves from each other and the world around and, I, and I, and I understand it might be a useful conceit here and there, totally get that, um, uh, uh, but I don't find it a very interesting conceit um, as an analytic conceit when you go forward with narrating a history or narrating an argument or something like that. I, would, I want my, my writers and, and people to be more reflective in a sense, and maybe that's a weird demand that I'm making upon people that is perhaps unfair, right? That's not their job. Right. Their job is to tell us what the, the neural correlates of religion are. That's not my job. That's their job.
0: <laughs> so why, John, why do you, why do you locate um, in neuromatic this what you call this way of being in the world that you're rejecting that position that you've like described as a masculinism, as a form of objectivity, as a detachment from history. Why do you um, find in uh, neuromatic the brain to be the center of that way of thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's a great question. Um, certainly didn't lead with this, but I think over time you you realize how, how charged the brain is in terms of the politics of gender in modernity. You know, from early on, the brain becomes you know, associated with like male sexual prowess, you know, in these different kinds of ways and way in which rationality coded as male, not feminine, the brain versus the body. And you see, you know, and it's not, you know, and again, I would be very clear, um, you know, about a lot of the things I talk about in terms of both race and gender in my book and talk about this kind of almost white mythology, a kind of white masculine mythology that accompanies and, and, and is part of the making of the brain into this sort of almost quasi-religious object. I'm not sure if I want to use that phrase, but you know what I'm saying, this idea, how did it become this? There's a lot of weird politics involved. And I think, gosh, you know, I don't know. I think I find it, I find it, I don't know. I think this goes back, again, my proclivities. Like I'm just more interested in positions and arguments and and, and politics that are more open-ended. Right, that are that are somehow are presented in such a way, with a little bit, even if they're presented strongly and with incredible authority, there's at least an ironic wink there that hmm, I understand this is just a performance, and it's your obligation to perform back at it. Right, and I think I learned I have a lot of probably unacknowledged. Um, like pragmatism slash William James and coursing through my blood a little bit to my read a lot of that in graduate school. And I was very taken with that. And it was precisely around this question where I, I think I was reading James when, um, also reading, you know, the first time you encounter Derrida or Foucault and, or Nietzsche or something like that. And the whole world begins to crumble and like, Oh shit, everything I thought was true is not and everything. And Oh my God, how can I ever, Oh my gosh, even the position that I, it's not that I, thought the wrong things. Oh my God, there's nothing that's true. I'm never going to have that stability again, that kind of feeling. And I remember reading James and he was just so kind of calm about it. And wasn't sexy about it. He was just like, of course, you know, there's this truth as well, you know, truth is a capital T and there's lowercase T and it's always in the future. It always gets worked out. You know, this kind of anti foundationalism that he kind of, he was very clear. It's like, like this, there's a, there's a politics to it, right? We don't want to live in a world with a bunch of assholes yelling at each other because they think they know what's true right righteously so um that is really bad at least for james for democracy and yes he has a little bit of american exceptionalism to him okay that's fine but i think like okay it would be a lot better if the world were made up of people who who didn't hold their positions to be you know tried and true and somehow akin to the word of god and even when they performed that, they you had a sense that they – that you had a sense that they had a sense that they were playing a role, you know? I don't know, a little performativity in there. Like, just don't take yourself so seriously, I think, might be my <laughs> – So, basically, <laughs> Ellie, you made me realize, what is what is your metaphysics, Sean? I'm just like, well, <laughs> so silliness, <funny> <laughs> silliness and humor. <laughs> but even like religion and science, like what is that basic yeah. thing? And so – Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, having written my last book, which, which is about, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of things, but it's also one could call it the history of the category of true religion Hmm. or maybe the category or the history of the categorical difference between true and false religion, how that difference is understood and imagined by individual people, how that imagination of that difference then plays out in what they do. Um, how it affects other people, how it gets taken up in different kinds of iterations, how those different iterations combine and somehow split and go off in differently inflected directions, come back, etc. So, you know, I, I I was versed in early part of my career in sort of thinking at the meta level about the category of religion and how much work it does in this world. And, 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 for the for good for bad for ugly you know it's not it's not a moral claim it's just like oh my gosh and it goes back to my little mention of charles taylor the idea that you know nobody lives without religion you know i mean yeah you don't have to go to church or mosque or synagogue or you can be against religion or spiritual but not religious but it it this is modernity it's there right it's in the news it's like oh my gosh the religious fundamentalist taliban are taking over afghanistan after the secular forces of, i mean you know like without even getting into like what's going on there like that categorical difference is everywhere and so then fast forward to this book i think i learned a lot from that that take and that research um and so the current book neuromatic is is sort of almost like yeah what it's asking the question oh my gosh the, there is this thing out there that we all identify as like the cutting edge of secular enlightened science. Like this is where the real fucking work of the future is getting done. We're building brains. We're building computers. We're, we're going to live fucking forever. We're going to make everything easy and convenient. And it's all kind of based around uh, a kind of scientific perspective that um, assumes itself to be true natural and human. Like, I mean, it's just like the, the end all be all right. The Like what is going on at the level of the brain? Um, and so I think, you know, when I see that as a, yeah, as a scholar of religion, I'm like, Oh, I just want to know how we came to how did that happen? How, how has it become so just commonsensical for anybody and everybody to almost feel required No matter what they're talking about, to sort of slip some neuroscientific study in to give whatever they're saying more legitimacy or more authority. um, How have we come to a point where it's become, again, just unquestionable how true the brain is for almost, you know, in all these different spaces? And so my perspective on the relationship between religion and science, I think of science and scientific perspective as similar to religion. I mean, a lot of people are claiming to be religious. A lot of people claim to be scientific. And thats I love it. And I want to study what they're doing. Yeah. Right? And I just, I guess, maybe, I think going back to that sort of, we kind of got into the tension between me and the neuroscientist. The kind of straw man <laughs> neuroscientist who, who stands there immune from the world around and me, this sort of, you know soft historian who's deconstructed everything who absorbs everything too much and doesn't have a space for their own voice or something like that i think part of that is um i i I just yeah i don't i don't grant i don't grant people the claims of their universal truth why i don't know. i think it's fucking dangerous too I think it's a dangerous world where people claim to know what's true and what's not in ways that are not practical. Like, you know, again, I want to leave, I want to leave aside like the kind of skeptical, well, John, you would want a neuroscientist working on your brain. If you had an epileptic fit or something like that, you wouldn't want a story. I'm like, yes, that's true. But you know what? That neuroscientist is, you know, not making claims about truth and politics and what it means to be human. That that neuroscientist simply solving a problem that is manifest in the contemporary moment. For some reason, people don't want to be this way. And they go to that doctor because they ask that doctor for to be changed or to feel a certain way or feel a different way. And that's awesome. I'm for that, right? That's, that's fine. I do have an issue when people begin to take that, that realm of practical truth and pr- practical effectivity into the world of metaphysics and the world of just even political claims of what's true and what's not. I find that I just, yeah, I just, you know, I react in a personal way. I just don't, I, just, yeah, I don't like it, but I just think this politically, I think it is not the kind of world that is a, is a pleasurable or, or productive world to live in if we're going to solve the problems that we need to solve you know, and, and to get out of these different kinds of political ruts we're in different kinds of ruts with social media, climate change, you know, the whole nine yards, right? You know, it's just, we're living in the end times, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is true. right? Um, and I guess the question is like, you know, how long are those? I mean, how do we even begin to get out of the mess that we're in? Right. And I think Naively, maybe that there's something to uh, a kind of deeply humanistic education and ethos that will allow people to say, "Hey, I believe this is true, and this is my universal truth, and this is the thing that I am orienting my entire existence around and my entire life around." And 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 I want to say, "God bless." Do that. Do that. Do that. Do that. But when you when you present it to other people, or when you kind of go out in the world and and make a difference in the world that that's not the mark that you're leaving, that there's some kind of universal claim that you can either ascribe to or not, and you're either right or wrong depending. Right? I just find that, I don't know.
0: You really, I think you characterize some of the patterns that you're tracing in each of the chapters through a number of examples as themes that get cycled through what you call the cybernetic fold. And so we have in some temporal register in each of the chapters, some phenomenon before it encounters cybernetics, in the encounter with cybernetics, and after the encounter with cybernetics, where cybernetics is acting as some kind of concentrated center some of power. Sort of like,
1: yeah, some sort of windmill to be in the middle of 20, yeah.
0: Yeah, it does something related to what you were just saying. Why, why, why is the cybernetic a center of gravity in this book? That's uh, a great question. I think it comes... And what is cybernetics?
1: Okay, cybernetics, yes. Yeah. Cybernetics is, you know, it's a term uh, uh, came, um, you know, sort of used in a kind of popular fashion by Norbert Wiener, who was a uh, um, mathematician um, at MIT who was working for anti-aircraft ballistics and 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 somebody who was a popularizer of um, a worldview that was really coming into age for a long time, I argue, 300 years, but really gets, you know, let's just just be really kind of narrow here. It really takes off in the 1920s and 30s with the development of radio and thinking about communication networks and trying to think uh, about um, problems of predictability and problems of compression and communication. And uh, different kinds of mathematical theories of like Boolean algebra, kind of this idea of thinking about the world in terms of ones and zeros and either ors. All of a sudden, you know, that was, you know, in the 19th century, that's what it is. But all of a sudden with the, the invention of, of radio and and thinking about how to um, maximize um, a communication channel to get as many messages on there as possible or to deal with the problem of how how do we transfer a message from point A to point B without it being corrupted by noise? Or how do we do this? All this is to say there were these new kind of technological problems um, in the mid 20th century. that had a lot to do with, again, um, radios and, and, and telephone communication, but also uh, world war II and military expansion that, that allowed a lot of people to begin, not allowed, kind of forced them and, and invited them to think about, um, uh, problems in terms of, I guess you might call systems and systems theory and networks and and using uh, a kind of perspective where you're really kind of aggressively moving away from a kind of 19th century linear mechanical worldview of cause and effect. You're having a much more complex mathematics, but also a much more complex uh, world, you know, and machines to be able to, in a sense, manifest an evidence to you that this math has a kind of um, kind of ground in the world. And so, um, beginning in the nineteen, let's say, forties and fifties, you begin to develop uh, some of the foundational principles and, and and theories that will go into the making of a brain that is full of neurons that are all connected to one another in a network, whose job um, is to either be on or off as a kind of open or closed channel. And what they do is process information. Uh, you also have similarly, they're kind of the same origins of what we now understand as a digital computer. Uh, you know, John von Neumann and other people in the 1940s and 1950s were building actual computers, digital computers, based upon the model of the brain that was also happening at the same time. Um, so you have storage, you have communication, you're, you're beginning to use these same theories about, you know, um, of, of, of networks and systems in all these different kinds of places. And there's many amazing books, as you know, and scholars out there who have traced all the wild corners of the world this sort of science goes into everything from the human sciences and academia Um, you have perhaps you know thinking about now where we have the stanford you know literature laboratory right where people are you know doing distant reading and plugging in 18th century text in the computer and doing all kinds of algorithmic searches that's part of the cybernetic moment you have all the you know all biology, all the sciences like this went, you know, hog wild about this mathematics and these kinds of things. And so that goes into there, it goes into every phone, every digital device you have is not just made up of this, of this cybernetic moment, but is actually bringing you with every touch and swipe into it, right? It's, it, it is assuming a certain kind of human. And guess what you are you, not you, Ali, particularly, but we are all, in a sense, given the computer, giving the screen exactly what's it, what it wants. You know, we're not putting up any resistance. We're being like, this only works if I kind of assume myself to be a certain kind of human being um, of, 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 a, of a kind of processing information where information is the kind of medium of my existence. So the question, I, I went off, what is cybernetics? So cybernetics is this thing in the middle of the 20th century that, you know, Uh, It does get filtered through in my book because I'm like, oh, my God, we're still in it. And, you know, there's a lot of really, you know, historians and other kinds of scholars who I think I would be more identified as like they're historians of the cyber. That's what they do. Right. And I don't I mean, I'm I'm kind of a newbie kind of interloper at this whole cybernetic stuff um, a little bit. And so there are different people like, well, the cybernetic moment happened from here to here and then it dissipated or, or the most important thing was, and that's all lovely historian of science ideas, stuff that I want to, everybody, everybody should read that book, but I'm not doing that. I am, I am simply trying to say, oh my God, we're, this moment has been long in the making and the moment is now, and I don't want to make these kind of hard distinctions between well it was different in 19 i mean yes it was different there's change over time but not the kind of rupture change that i think is usually the bread and butter of historians and so that you notice quite rightly in my book that sort of 1945 to 1960 thing everything kind of runs through it in a little ways it kind of comes in comes out and sometimes back and for me um it simply kind of goes back to the i think a problem that i often will Force my students to dwell in with me is like, what difference does it make that the brains that we imagine ourselves to have and the brain? that we imagine ourselves to have as precisely the mark of what it means to be human what difference does it make that that imagination of that brain is based upon the same principles the same science the same insights the same affects as those that went into the making of the fucking phone that you have right beside your bed every night right like in that classic question that augustine asked like what do you love when you love your god what do you love when you love your machine? Right. And so it's just like that. It's just like, wow. And that when I, that's, that's the, that's, that's the conceit, right? Like, I don't know what to do with that question. I, I, I find it disturbing that there could be that weird symmetry that is actually the thing that allows these things to work so well. And for these things to feel so much part of us, it is, it is the it is the weirdness that will allow, as we move into the future, and my book kind of gets into this, as we, you know, become more and more comfortable with this and we internalize them more, we are going to change. We're always changing our humanity. Our humanity is not some stable thing that was once something. It's always changing. But as we move into the changes, as we move into the next 20 or 30 years, it seems that those changes are increasingly going to be driven by this kind of um, continuity and compatibility between um, the mechanics of whatever is behind that screen and the mechanics of what's below our skull, and I want to disrupt that. I find I, I think I want to I want us to think more about that. And like, do we really want to do that? Because there's all different kinds of ways you can be human in this world, and that's one of the beautiful things that the study of religion does it teaches us. As a matter of fact, as historical record. All different kinds of ways to be human and it's been done differently by a lot of different people across time and space um, and so again this kind of goes back to my you're like kind of pushing it like why am I so suspicious of universalism because that universalism does not allow for that truth to fully manifest itself and fully be included um, in the way in which we all should be imagining our humanity and so I think I'm that same universalism that I'm kind of suspicious that it inhabits when it's inhabited when it by a single person or a perspective. Um, it's just something about the the kind of universal connectivity or relationship between our brains and the computers that we're building uh, that I think also drives my my critical project.
0: Amidst such a ubiquitous way of ordering things in the world, I, like academics will often call it, a logic amidst such ubiquitous logic why did you choose like the thematic organizing examples that you did things like the hyper um active agency detection device or universal correspondences or the asylum why did those become the ways to tell this story
1: you know i think that those are all after the fact i mean those it's like i'm a casting director and i'm having people you know try out for a role and it's like i need i need some set piece that is going to allow me like for example the hyperactive agency detection device which is um a a kind of analytic uh uh, that is often um and has been used by particularly cognitive scientists of religion as a kind of you know as a framework to talk about religion it's not like everybody believes the same thing about it but it is this kind of idea that why why are humans religious okay that's an interesting question which what they mean by that is why do humans believe in cognitively in supernatural agents agents that are invisible um and so the theory as the theory goes that there is a kind of um evolutionary psychology perspective in which early humans and this this is also one of my pet peeves i cannot handle cannot handle evolutionary explanations for contemporary behavior that are done in less than maybe i don't know six generations of scholars i mean like seriously like the elevator pitch like here's what it is early humans early humans some humans had what we call we all have agency detection devices which are basically a series of neural systems that are connected that serve a purpose basically a kind of hazard protection precaution awareness of our environment um, but it comes down to let's let's hypothetically have two groups of humans. One group of humans has an agency detection device that is hyperactive, that is o- working overtime. When they go out in the woods and they're hunting for food, right? As early humans did, you know. And they're going out in the bush or the wild, um, and they're and, and this group of humans who's they're always sensing agents. They're like, oh, what's behind that tree? What? Did that did that tree talk to me or oh that rock you know they're 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 seeing agents everywhere. And it sounds silly to us secular, you know, whatever moderns that people would talk to plants and rocks and get mad. But it makes perfect sense because as we know in evolution, that those human beings were actually more likely to survive to the next generation because they would they would oversense agents and you know the tiger behind the tree? they would notice the tiger and they would run away and therefore they would live to be another day. But the other humans whose detection device was not working over time, they might say, I don't know what that is. I didn't detect an agent behind there. I'm going to go on my, Oh, they got eaten by a tiger and they're dead. And that's, and that ladies and gentlemen is why religion
0: is. (laughs) Why does that that bother you? What if that is why religion is? Why does that bother you? (laughs) okay
1: that's a great question um yes okay why does that i mean i first of all i love it i love it i mean i have to say the height i just love saying the word hyperactive agency detection device i mean it's just it is it's like the best the best actor in my book like the wow like yeah you brought an academy award for this right um i find it i find it absurd absurd as a historian who studies the 19th century which is like yesterday okay yesterday i got my book they're from the 19th century. i got this book signed book orson fowler right in my hand right now i'm i'm there i don't know he knows what the fuck was happening in the 19th century really right in terms of that and so you can just transform me back millions of years and tell me and the early dawn of human beings, this is your theory about what happens. It's the same person who's like, well, you know, I mean, to d- d- find any contemporary thing that's happening, to 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 mistake it or misunderstand it as something that that is that needs a universal explanation for me is this I find it I find it incredible, right? I live in a world where there are a lot of explanations for a lot of different kinds of things, right? Um, and it's one thing again. I want to give my sort of credence to the scientists doing this kind of work. Like, why? Why do humans need this this amount of carbohydrates a day? Or why do you? I mean, there are kinds of things that are like, I mean, like we can have theories about that. And but the theories are like, why? Why do men act a certain way or why are we religious or why do we show empathy or why do we engage in war and these kinds of things? It's like, for me, it's, I, I, I am, I love it because I want to study it because going back, that's theology to me. Like that's like, you came up, you have an origin story of the universe. Awesome. You're like, oh, these other people got origin stories too. I'll teach a class on it. Right. And and so I find it as a, a kind of explanation of human activity in the present to be, really just I just I just I don't know I find it I find it kind of height of absurdity when people call out like well this is the reason why this is because an evolutionary history like well, what about World War II what about fucking Twitter right there's a lot of reasons people are kinds of ways and there's so and like you think I mean yes and so that's why that's why I don't think do you think it's true the do hyperactive I- agency detection device is an adequate explanation for the This sort of persistence um, of of religion in the present age.
0: I think in this book, you you teach me how to see how the hyperactive agency detection device is the perfect explanation for how we think about religion in this age. How religion has become an object that one can study in a laboratory.
1: Yes, but that's like, that's, that's, yeah, That's, that's, that's
0: I <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think you, you actually, you do an excellent job in the book also of showing how ubiquitous this evolutionary narrative is in so many, um, so many different areas from the historical examples that you're talking about that might be coded as spiritual that might be coded as religious or that might be coded as scientific they share um, that particular commitment to the idea that things are evolving there is a survival to the, of the fittest there's a feedback loop to the development and production of ideas mm-hmm. is that something that comes from cybernetics is it eaten up by cybernetics is it expelled by cybernetics or does it have a different relationship to that kind of central weight of the book?
1: Yeah, no, I think, you know, cybernetics is definitely a utopian project, you know. Um, You know, the early, like, I mean, cybernetics gets taken up in different kinds of evolutionary circles very explicitly in in those kinds of ways. I don't deal with them so much in my book, but I think there really is a a resonance between these two. I mean, there is progress. Like, I mean, cybernetics is like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, like, we now are on the cusp of – this revolution in thinking and doing and being and what it means to be human. And wow, look at us. We are at the pinnacle of, of, of human thought. And one of the things that I think I was quoting my book where I quote some cybernetician in like 1962 who just sort of lays it all out there without apologies. Like our, our method of scientific inquiry is built into nature itself. The way in which we're thinking about the world, the way in which we are being scientific is not just some sort of human effort to understand the inscrutable world. It actually – we have discovered how actual – we have discovered how reality really works. And we are now modeling or we are able to fine-tune our brains and our approach on that. And so they've reached the end and now it's just about filling it all in. And so there's this kind of assumption among many cyberneticians that they are at the end all be all of knowledge. It's the same way in which somebody is like, you know what? I had a dream last night and God spoke to me and God told me these are the five truths of the world. And again, I love that. I love it. More of that, please, right? But I'm not, I, I don't instinctively, say, well, that guy's crazy and that person's got a lab coat. So, you know, you know. I, no, I'm like that. They, they are on the same epistemological and ontological footing as an historian, Particularly when I'm not invested in labeling them—one's crazy, one's rational, one's religious, one's secular—like, no, let's get together. And I think in the book too, I mean, I deal a lot with religions that I think a lot of people, even historians of religion, who will be like, "That's a little out there," like Scientologists and parapsychologists, and you know, the, those individuals who are often even at the margins of stories of religion, right? And I try to put them in on the same page and in the same space as these other figures who we kind of assume to be kind of leading lights of uh, kind of scientific revolutions in the 20th century. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know how much difference there is uh, between uh, some of the ideas of L. Ron Hubbard and, and, and some of the ideas of Norbert Wiener. right? They have different training and, of course, different audiences, but they're part of the same moment. And they're literally you know, imbibing the same atmosphere. Um, we have instances where, you know, I'm going to go off, but like, you know, I had this, I have this supposedly, you know, um, Claude Shannon spent a night at L. Ron Hubbard's house in Jersey. And like night.
0: 19- that's where I'm
1: from. Okay. So, right, yeah. so have you been to the house? <laughs> I mean, I want to know what happened. I, I think that is an incredible Netflix documentary. Wouldn't that be yes. start there? You would just start there and be like, okay, where does this go? Right. You know, what did they talk about? What happened? Either they like each other, not like each other. Was it like, who knows? Oh, it's good.
0: (laughs) It seems like a major problem in the book, a place where you focus is on the influence of information theory and cybernetics in neurological thought, but also in, a, in the other places in, in culture where it resonates out to, to try and mediate the relationship between a person and their environment. How um, how did cybernetics get a hold on what is inside and outside the human being and what that looked like?
1: How did it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it comes with those claims. So people like mm-hmm. Wiener, you know, like this is, so this is, you know, that that idea that there is a kind of um, the same – there is a metaphysics, right? There's a metaphysics that is there that is animating not just human being and animal life, but also any 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 system, right? Any system, whether it's to be organic or not organic. It's just when component parts get together, they um in the in the sort of just the nature of our universe, they begin to act and move and relate in certain ways. Um I mean that's like I think that's 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 a faith commitment right at some level right and we can prove that you can you can like give evidence like look at the look at the flock of birds and look at the mitochondria and you can begin to make these sort of relationships like okay I guess that makes sense and and so it, it it's a powerful sort of insight but that is um I mean that I, I mean that's that's really, that's powerful right and I think that's why cybernetics has also been taken up um Um, In in different ways by, you know, in in like animal studies and like, you know, these insights like, okay, what is this human exceptionalism that, that, you know, is so problematic in so many different registers of our culture? Um, You know, cybernetics gives you a lot of ammo to take down a kind of human exceptionalism, right? I mean, we're nothing but a kind of system, you know, and we're we're nothing but a system like other systems and other systems, you know, and so... I, I, it gets taken up in a lot of different registers, but also I think it, it's it's a really um, uh, thrilling way to think about the world. And um, and I mentioned you know something about cybernetics as being you know I think you can't differentiate it from a kind of linear nineteenth century cause and effect mechanics. I mean, think about all those times in your life, Allie, but also our listeners' lives, where you be, you think in terms of systems. You think in terms. It of-
0: seems like systems is the key term of yeah. the 2020s. We're talking yeah. about. The natural systems, ecological systems, systemic racism, yeah. um, systemic sexism. Are those terms that emerge out of cybernetic dominance or do they have a different story?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, my, my, you know, I would want to take a look at each one of those manifestations of the, the, the systematic, but my sense is that they, they certainly move through the cybernetic archive and they move mm-hmm. through the flowering of all the sort of post cybernetic ways in which to sort of think, you know, um, you know, the most potent legacy of cybernetics is the computer networks and the systems under which we live, which gives fodder to different insights about how racism works or how sexism works, you know? Um, and so I think they all all are connected, but it's also, you know, I, I want to, I think I get into this in my book, there's a lot of ways in which I acknowledge, like, I find that, you know, a kind of almost systems approach to things a really powerful you know, from my own work as an historian, right? And I, I talk a little bit about Foucault and his sort of work as his, his notions of discourse as being part, you know, kind of, you know, kind of beside the development of cybernetics. Um, in a lot of ways, he's, he's very much resonant. And I, and I appreciate that. And so I, one of these moments in my book where I find my own self thinking in terms of systems, systems of discourse, um, I recognize and I try to recognize as fully as I can um, but not as much as, I mean, obviously there's always more to do, but as fully as I can, the way in which I myself am implicated in this world and where I, I am. Like I, I have, in a sense, reduced the world to systems because that's what we all are doing and how not to do that. And my goal is to somehow produce a book or an argument that just moves against that on some level. So somehow this goes off. There's a possibility of it not being contained by that, um, because I think systems is, we are in it, right? We're the fish in the water and we can't see the water, you know?
0: We You started the book by discussing the constraints of possible measurement in the MRI machine. How does historical analysis work differently than that? Or does it work differently than that?
1: Hmm. I do. I mean, yeah. I mean, the constraints of history are amazing. I mean, like, I mean... You know, like that again, this I'm thinking about my conversations with the cognitive and neuroscientists who sort of just just find no value or merit really in what they see as just like well john you you're a good writer, you're, you can really turn a phrase or you can you know you're not saying anything, you're just putting words together and just throwing it up there right um there's this uh you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a historian right I mean I but, I mean I also want to say I'm not just making this shit up. I have footnotes and I have conversations that I'm in, and I have readers who have read all this stuff too. and so um, there is a, a kind of modality by which my work is grounded, but it's not grounded in the same way. It's not grounded in the same way as like this is this is this is this is what's happening right I, I I would a mark of my book's success will be if people read it. And either agree or more importantly disagree with it and most importantly write another book that says you know john's kind of right about this but he was totally wrong about that right that's where that goes um and i I think there's something about um the limit you know the limit there's of course there's limitations there's other stories you can tell that's built into what i'm doing that's my performance right What's your performance? And, I, and that would be my kind of response to that sort of thing. What is it, right? And so, of course, mine's restrained. And what's fascinating about you use the MRI, so um, there are many people out there who MRI is like this kind of truth-telling device. It's like, you know, you just wave it over your head and you can sort of see God, right? Literally. <laughs> uh, but there are many people. Many people I encountered within the neuroscientific community who are just like either resentful, not cognitive science, particularly in psychologists, even more so, that in order to get a grant, get a million dollar grant or two million in order to get your lab started and do the work that you want to do, you need to have an MRI technician on it. You need to show the funders that you're really doing that work because that signifies hard work, the hard work of science as opposed to somebody, you know testing people and asking them questions or somebody theorizing about cognition they need a hard mri technician scientist on their grants and i also talked to many neuroscientists and cognitive scientists like yeah you know they're like skeptical of colleagues who overuse or overinterpret data from the mri because the mri they're like, no, oh, it just it measures very you know doesn't measure that much and that's awesome i love i was like wow that that's when i'm like okay there's like, yeah, that's awesome. You understand that you have a device that's limited that shows you some things and you can only use it as, you know, to the, the extent that you can talk about its limitations. And, and so, I, of course, I do think there are limitations to history. And I, think, you know, and I think I would say I would want, again, going back to an earlier point, I think it would be wonderful if uh, more neuro and cognitive scientists would would sort of dwell in the limitations. It's fun to dwell in your limitations, right? You know, because when you can acknowledge things that you don't know or things that you can't know or things that are really hard to know, I think that's much more fun than the sort of trading barbs that are like tweets about how authoritative your knowledge is. Mm.
0: <laughs> but... I think in the epilogue of your book, I find that chapter to just have an extraordinary momentum to it um, where you're showing us how the many examples that we've run through over the last, you know, 380 pages or whatever can weave together to be something that we've called over and over again in our interview, almost a metaphysic of modernity, a significant component of what it is to live naturally in the world. But I feel like almost at the end in those last few paragraphs, that bubble pops a little bit because it seems like you want to position us towards understanding that there is some way out of the neuromatic. Even if you can never fully, as you say in the introduction, escape from the neurotic. Yeah. What is that?
1: that? Was wishful thinking on my part those last few pages? Maybe I wanted to not end on a downer.
0: <laughs> um,
1: so yes, yeah, so when you say the bubble pops, is that this sort of my break between it gets it, the the voice becomes much more um, personal and it's sort of? I
0: kind think of, you like you literally say I close my computer. Yeah. Yeah. And then.
1: And then I go and live my life, right? You know, I think, you know, and so that's a great question, Ali. Um, on one hand, I think we are totally inundated and saturated and a part of the discursive, the neuromatic realm of the metaphysics of modernity, whatever we would want to call it. I, You know, many different scholars have different names for it last couple hundred years that's what it means to be a scholar within modernities to the fucking what is that shit we all know it's that what is it um and so on one hand i am there with that um yeah and i sort of end that last couple of pages is sort of you know highly sentimental going back to our the beginning of our conversation here perhaps like unveiling my romantic proclivities as a writer and as a thinker uh but i think there is things like chance and um happenstance and uh who knows, mystery that is uh in the world still. And I do not want, I don't present it to the reader. I don't make any claims that I think, I mean, I'm presenting to it now to a listener, perhaps it's out there. I've had moments where I convinced myself that it's out there. It's out there. Outside. Somewhere
0: outside the cybernetic fold. Yeah,
1: I think it exists. I think it, I've been there, but you know, that's not my job, right? My job is not to I don't know I don't I don't maybe I'll put it this way I don't feel comfortable naming that space and I don't feel comfortable I don't know if I have much to say about it why I don't know I think it is that and oh my gosh I'm so I'm just like oh my god I'm fucking William Blake aren't I um (laughs) so it's just like a space outside of it's a it's a space that (laughs) That is, in a sense, you would do. You don't do it justice with language, right? And so that that book ends with a little bit, like you know, it points, it points, it points beyond the computer. You know, it points outside myself as a writer, and my kids, and my family, and my friends, and 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 a kind of warning that you know, if if we are not to, in a sense, find that or embrace that or encounter that spaces outside the neuromatic, I do fear that. There is a a kind of um, bad future for us on some level, right? Um, And so why don't I do it in the book? I don't know. I mean, because I do it in my classes, I think. I do try to think I do it, you know, but I don't do it on that last page. And that goes back to why I'm such a control freak in my writing, because I wouldn't feel in control if I opened up that can of worms.
0: It seems to make a little bit of – there is some sense to um – in the book, you frame what you are doing is analyzing discourse. Discourse is an object mm-hmm. you're contributing to it. It's got you wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. It's agential, mm-hmm. um, something you can analyze and something you quite fully know. But this escape out of it—that's not—that's not something you can capture in words.
1: Well, I don't want to claim that I have escaped that. Like, I don't yeah. think. I mean, I only want to claim that I. There, I believe I would want to affirm with my hand in the air on, on some sort of sacred book that we could all agree is sacred that like, I, I affirm that there's a space outside the neuromatic. Um, but you know, I think, you know, it gets at where, what, you know, after this book, after 380 pages of being hit over the head constantly with this, Oh my God, this world is thick. This world is thick with this, this fog of whatever this is. um, I hope to open it up enough for you. My envision is where the reader would close the book and hopefully in my, like that was pretty good book and it was dark. It's a dark book. It's kind of, you know, it's funny and it's, but it's dark. It's dark. Right. And, and there's a reason why my grandmother, for example, has this kind of weird appearance dedicated to my grandmother um, who, you know, has, uh, you know, kind of interesting history. She, I talk about in the book, but let's put it this way. She was a committed evangelical and a committed premillennialist. And the line that I find great humor in the book, but I also tell this at parties when, you know, she talks about John, John, we we are lucky to be living in the end times. And it's just like, you know, there's something, Does that line for like, you know, bring, there's something for me that is both, absolutely dead center within the metaphysics of maternity which i describe, but it's also my memory of it and my, the way in which it hits me um it takes me out of it on some level too and i imagine you know hopefully there's ways in which a reader can find something in the book where they don't encounter that space outside or that space aside in my book but somehow after the book that make any sense yes okay
0: especially if we can think of neuromatic or a particular history of religion in the brain by john modern as its own kind of windmill where we learn something and then we come out um i like to think of that as shooting off the windmill at the end i think
1: that's nice that's yeah kind of, yeah yeah. And, yeah it's just like yeah i mean i like that um Yeah, because just want one, you know, I'm going to, you know, I just, you know, I, you know, kind of going back and really met on this, like, we're part of a very small little, little weird, little nerdy group that's been around for, I don't know, depending on how you want to count it, not very, you know, decades, centuries, whatever, just like nerds who are way into like telling these stories, but also accounting for our stories to other nerds, right? And, you know, um, I just think there's something really valuable about contributing to that conversation. And you know, people ask like, what's the biggest payoff? Like, you know, how many people are you, are you gonna make a lot of money in your book or something? That's always the question. Of course not, you know, you lucky if 500 people read it but you know what those 500 people who read it they're going to have an opinion about it and guess what a lot of them are teachers and they're going to teach it you know they're going to not even teach it they're just going to learn something about the world and they'll make a little different decision next time they teach and it's just this slow kind of trickle out right um and but also just at the end of the day too that going back to our initial conversations about the aesthetics of writing um life is too short i'm going to read books that are gonna make me mad gonna make me cry gonna make me fear for my life you know i don't want to read boring books Hmm. and so um hopefully you know i like the windmill vision of the windmill i know that's not boring you know you might not might not like it but it'll it'll spit you (laughs) out somewhere (laughs) that's in there yeah so yeah thank you thank you so much really enjoyed i enjoyed the conversation
0: thank you so much for listening I want to thank Matt Donahue, a brilliant thinker and friend and podcast editor for assembling this episode. If you want to hear more from John, you can find links to his work at johnmodern.com. J-O-H-N-M-O-D-E-R-N. You can also hear more from both of us in a new audio project John is directing called Machines in Between, funded by the Luce Foundation, which you can find at machinesinbetween.com. Thank you.